deadly Cold War foes. Generals clamoring for attack. Political ambitions and fantasies. What brings a world to the brink of destruction? And more importantly, what brings it back? Max Hastings' gripping new book, Abyss, The Cuban Missile Crisis 1962, tells the amazing story of the 13 days that shook the world. Abyss by Max Hastings. Out now in all good bookshops. This episode involves descriptions of domestic violence. It may be triggering to some listeners, and this episode may not be for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. August 27, 1991, Cambridge, Ohio. 17-year-old Robin Stone told her mother she was going to her best friend's home to study and she would return home in an hour. But she never did return home and her mother would never see her beloved daughter alive again. Robin's heavily decomposed body, along with the body of her unborn baby boy, would be found by deer hunters four months later, the victims of an apparent homicide. Robin's family would spend the next 30 years fighting for justice. But was her killer closer than anyone thought? This is Robin's story. Robin Stone was seven months pregnant when she went missing on August the 27th, 1991. It was her first day of senior year of high school. She came home from school, got an urgent call, walked out of her house for the last time, and she was never heard from again. And think about it, this was a little bitty school where they all knew each other. And Robin didn't show up for school on the second day. Four months later, on December the 28th of 91, right after Christmas, three men were hunting out by Lewberg Lake, and they happened upon some skeletal remains. Robin Diane Stone was born January 12th, 1974, to mother Judy Stevens and father Clyde Stone. Unfortunately, Judy and Clyde's relationship would not last, and the two would separate soon after Robin's birth. Clyde would not be a constant figure in Robin's life and would come and go with regularity. When Robin was seven years old, she would get the one thing she wanted most of all, a baby sister, when Judy gave birth to Jamie Edwards. Again, Jamie's father would leave soon after Jamie was born, and then it was just the three women against the world. Robin adored her baby sister, and despite the significant age gap, the two were very close. Robin was like a second mother to Jamie and doted on her constantly. Even when Robin hit her teenage years, she wasn't embarrassed to take her sister with her when she went out with friends. Where Robin went, it was a given that Jamie would go too. Robin would be described by those who knew and loved her, which was everyone she came across. People were just drawn to her. Everyone liked her. Judy would later remember fondly, quote, She was friendly with everyone and made genuine human connections regardless of their age or anything, unquote. But she would be described as being full of love and life. She was friendly and outgoing, strong and confident, unique, driven and loved by everyone. And not only was Robin people smart, she was book smart too. Robin was a natural nurturer and wanted to work with animals. Her dream was to go to veterinarian school, a dream that she was definitely on track of achieving in August 1991 when our story takes place. 
Robin was entering her senior year at Cambridge High School in Cambridge, Ohio. She was participating in a work-study program, where she only went to school half the day. She would then go to an internship at a company which taught athletic sports medicine and she learnt how to wrap injuries. Judy would remember one time not long before her death that Robin found a rabbit with a wounded leg in their backyard. She brought the rabbit inside and wrapped its leg and nursed it back to health. And once it was fully healed, she released it back into the nearby woods. Robin was also a little boy crazy, which is normal for her age. But since the January of that year, she'd been dating on and off with a local boy, Lee Savage. They did not have the healthiest of relationships. Lee's father, Jack, took a strong dislike to Robin. The Savages were old money and well-established in the community. There was even a road named in their honour. Whereas Robin came from a single-parent household in the poor part of town. Jack did not believe Robin was good enough for his only son, calling Robin quote-unquote welfare trash. Because of this, Lee would break up with Robin often to keep his father happy. But Robin was madly in love with Lee, and even though she would date other boys during their breaks, she would beg Lee to get back together with her, until he relented and the cycle would begin again. Not only would Robin begin her senior year in August 1991, she would also be preparing for the birth of her first child. She was seven months pregnant with a boy she was planning on naming Zachary. Robin would write in her diary and tell everyone that Lee was the baby's father. She wanted him to be part of her and the baby's lives. But Lee didn't believe or didn't want to believe that he was the one responsible that he didn't know who was, but it definitely wasn't him. His father Jack would also state Lee was not the father of Robin's baby, and that she was already four months pregnant when they started dating, which we know now wasn't even possible. August 27, 1991, Robin's first day of senior year. She only had half a day of school, so she spent the early afternoon with her best friend since the fifth grade, Jodie Stopak, before going home at three to walk with her mother to the nearby elementary school to pick up her ten-year-old sister, Jamie. The three of them then walked home together, chatting happily about their first day school adventures. Not long after returning home, the phone rang. Robin answered and she had a short conversation with the person on the other end. Judy heard her daughter say, quote, I'll be right there, unquote, before ending the phone call. Robin would then tell Judy she was going to Jodie's to help her with her math homework. Robin assured her mother that she'd be home in about an hour. It was kind of an unspoken agreement that Robin would always be home by dinner, and then she left in her 1980 Ford Granada. But then 6pm came and went. At first, Judy was slightly annoyed and assumed Robin had gotten to gossiping with her best friend and simply lost track of time. Ready to lecture her daughter about responsibility, she called Jodie. Her whole world stopped, though, when Jodie told her she hadn't called the house that day and that Robin hadn't been back to her house since leaving mid-afternoon. Judy had so many unanswered questions going through her head. Why did Robin lie about who called the house? Where did she go? 
questions that would remain unanswered today, more than 30 years later. In a panic, Judy called all of Robin's other friends, but no one had seen her since leaving school that morning. While in the middle of trying to work out where Robin went and why, at 8.30pm, Judy received a phone call from the Guernsey County Sheriff's Department. They had received a report that Robin's car had been found next to an abandoned trailer near the Cambridge-Westland Township border. But Robin was nowhere to be seen. Police told Judy there was nothing unusual in or around Robin's car, that there was no sign of a struggle. The only thing that remotely seemed suspicious involved a pair of fuzzy dice that was hanging from her rearview mirror when she left home four hours earlier. When the car was found, the string holding the dice to the mirror was broken and the dice had been thrown into the back seat. But that alone did not necessarily mean foul play. All the police could tell Judy was the car had been found and there was no sign of the pregnant teen anywhere. Judy knew in her heart of hearts that something wasn't right. This behaviour was not like her daughter at all, and she reported Robin missing to police. Now, there was some urgency in the search for Robin. She was seven months pregnant, so she was already high risk. She did not have her prenatal vitamins with her, something that she would take every day without fail. Police did not consider for a moment that this was a runaway situation. Nothing in Robin's character or behaviour suggested that she was unhappy or wanted to run away. Judy knew Robin wouldn't leave and not tell them where she was going and that she was okay. Even though she didn't want to believe it, Judy knew that something bad had happened to her daughter. Detectives interviewed those closest to Robin, but no one was able to provide any information to where she would have headed that afternoon or where she could be now. The same name kept coming up, though, Lee Savage, Robin's boyfriend. But when he was interviewed by police, he insisted he had not spoken with Robin for several days, as they were again broken up. That he wasn't the father of her unborn baby, and that he had no idea either where she could have gone. Lee even suggested that his own father could be the baby's father, something again we know now wasn't possible, that Robin never had a sexual relationship or any kind of relationship with Jack Savage. For the next several days, investigators scoured the area to see if they could locate the missing teen, but without any leads of where to start looking, every search turned up with a dead end. And as the days turned into weeks and then into months, and Zachary's due date came and went, any hope of finding Robin and the baby alive and well diminished. December 28, 1991. Four months since Robin's disappearance. Two hunters from Zanesville, a father and son, were out hunting deer in the woods near Lumberg Lake in Westland Township, Ohio. The son went ahead of his father, eager to trap his first deer of the season. As he went down the hill, he spied what he thought to be deer bones. Curious, he looked for some more, but then he saw a jawbone and he realised this was no deer. It was a skeletal remains of a human. He raced back to his father and the two looked some more, finding a human skull. 
They reported their findings to the local police. Investigators arrived on the scene within minutes, led by Sheriff Michael McCauley. And it would be Sheriff McCauley that had the forethought to search for the baby's remains. There were plenty of evidence the remains belonged to Robin. The skeleton was found only a mile from where her car had been found. There was some jewellery around the body that matched what Robin owned, and tattered shreds of clothing with the remains also matched the clothing Robin had been wearing when she was last seen. But Sheriff Macaulay would be the one to find the baby's tiny bones, scattered like his mother around the area due to their animals in the woods. And even though police immediately knew they found Robin and her baby, she was the only pregnant woman to go missing in the area. They needed to wait for a match using dental records for formal identification. And then it was official. Robin Stone and her baby had been murdered. Now, unfortunately, the medical examiner could not determine an exact cause of death due to how heavily decomposed the remains were when they were found. But Robin's skull had no noticeable trauma and none of her bones showed any marks from a bullet or knife. The coroner could not rule out strangulation, but also couldn't rule it in either. On her death certificate, Robin's official cause of death is only listed as homicide. News that Robin was so close the whole time and no one knew broke Judy and Jamie. They had lost the glue that held them together. Judy would later state she considered giving up many times, but that Jamie kept her going. The small, close-knit community of Cambridge were also rocked that one of their own could have been killed in such a brutal manner. Quote, The harder we tried to forget, the more we thought about it. It was the saddest moment in our lives, and it greatly affected our small community. Unquote. And called the Sheriff's Department. A female body has been discovered. That body who believed to be the Robin Stone was missing several months ago. The deputy who responded knew about Robin's missing person case, so he was actively looking for little baby bones. And he found those right there. It never really has been established who the father of the baby was. Yeah. The police thought that determining the father of Robin's child was key to the case, but Robin Stone was pretty honest about the fact that she had lots of boyfriends. She kept a journal documenting uh, what she did with those boys. Without proof of who the father was, the DA felt that they did not have enough to prove this case. So the case just rocked along for 23 years with nothing happening. Police would then change the course of their investigation. They were no longer searching for a missing person, but searching for her killer. Police believed the baby's father held the key to solving the murder. But it was 1991 and DNA was still in its infancy. Robin believed Lee was the father, but he denied it was the case and there was a chance that he wasn't. Robin didn't hide the fact that she'd been dating quite a few different guys around the time she got pregnant. Investigators even read Robin's diary to get a better insight to what was happening in her life at the time she was murdered. Despite his insistence that he wasn't involved, police were still suspicious of Lee and his motives. Robin's body was found near Lumberg Lake and in her diary she mentioned several times that Lee took her there on dates. And Lumberg Lake was only about half a mile from the Savage property. The family would regularly take their boat out fishing there, so it was an area Lee would have been familiar with. 
Lee's father, Jack Savage, was also someone the police looked at closely in their investigation. Jack had a reputation around town for having an explosive temper. And when another parent called Jack on the night Robin disappeared to tell him what had happened, he told her he hoped Robin was dead. Add on to that, Jack's strong dislike for Robin and his disapproval of Lee's relationship with her. And then there was the baby that Robin was telling everyone belonged to his son. All of this gave Jack the motive to get rid of Robin and their problem. But despite all the circumstantial evidence pointing to Lee and Jack Savage as being the ones responsible for Robin and Zachary's murder, police could find no physical evidence connecting them to the crime. And after two years of investigations, the case went cold due to the lack of evidence. I still kick myself as the as to who was on the phone that night. What was going on in her life that she didn't want you to know about? Probably Lee. Did Lee Savage ever call your house or come by to see if you knew anything about Robin? Never, not one time. He didn't even go to the funeral. And it's just a nightmare for a mother to go through this. It would be 11 years before Judy and Jamie could finally lie Robin to rest. Police held Robin and Zachary's remains so that possible evidence could be gathered. But in 2002, her body was finally released. And in 2002, a funeral for Robin was held at Northwood Cemetery. Robin and Zachary would be buried in the same casket, to remain together forever. Interestingly, Lee Savage did not attend his former girlfriend's funeral. It would be in 2014. The television show Cold Justice brought two new investigators to the case to allow fresh eyes to look over the evidence to hopefully find more information for Robin's parents, Judy and Clyde, as well as her sister, Jamie. The family were heavily involved in the episode, but they would also later state the process was a tough experience. It brought back memories they had buried in the decades following Robin's murder. Even watching the episode as someone who has only spent a week researching Robin's story, watching the grief and heartache of Robin's loved ones, it makes difficult viewing. Something that is consistent with interviews of family members many years after a violent crime. I've learnt the passage of time does not lessen the heartache, the grief or the guilt. They will always want answers and justice, and deservingly so. But what the cold justice investigators could give the family was some answers. What time did bring was forensic technology, so investigators could determine once and for all who the father of Zachary was. And Robin was right. Lee Savage was Zachary's father. When confronted with information by investigators, Lee backpedalled on his original statement. He admitted that he did have a sexual relationship with Robin, and he knew he was the baby's father. But he insisted that he and Robin had broken up, and he had ceased all contact with her at the urging of his father, Jack, and that he knew nothing of what happened to Robin and he was no way involved in her murder. But what else the cold justice investigators did discover would increase the weight of suspicion upon Lee. Investigators spoke with several of Lee's ex-girlfriends who told them that he inherited his father's violent streaks. One former girlfriend alleged that he broke her towel bone when he pushed her out of the door. Another former girlfriend claimed Lee choked her out during sex, but she was too frightened he would kill her if she pressed charges. 
all his previous girlfriends would confirm this was the case in their relationships. To him, violence and sexual activity went hand in hand. They couldn't say no because he would force himself upon them. And then they were too scared to fight back because they feared for their lives. Lee's ex-wife would say their entire relationship was marred by violence due to Lee's bad temper. And after they divorced, he told her that she was lucky he didn't do to her what he had done to quote-unquote that other girl. Could he have been talking about Robin? Is it possible he took Robin to Lumberg Lake and wanted to have sex with her? But she didn't want to, and maybe she did fight back. And he tried to force her to bend to his will, and he choked her with his bare hands, which would explain why there was no marks on her bones. Or could Lee have specifically taken Robin there to murder her? Because he didn't want the burden of a baby, and didn't see his future with Robin. His family disapproved of their relationship. Did Jack kill her? He didn't hide the fact he disliked her and her family. And if Robin had the baby, Lee would be tied to her forever. Or did they kill her together? The savages were a close-knit family. Locals would tell investigators that if one of the savages didn't like you, then you were the enemy of the entire family. Or are they innocent? Because of the tunnel vision of investigators, because of the circumstances, they were unfairly tarnished with the guilty label without having any knowledge of Robin's fate. Jamie's an adult now. At the time Robin disappeared, she was only 10 years old. So obviously Jamie's had a lot of questions throughout the years and missed a lot of the sisterhood, I guess, if you will. Judy never got to see a grandchild grow up. Despite the new evidence that was uncovered by the renewed interest in the investigation because of the Cold Justice TV program, there has never been any charges filed in Robin's murder. And despite suspicions suggesting otherwise, there has never been any official suspects named by police. Robin's son, Zachary, would have just celebrated his 30th birthday. Robin's father, Clyde, would sadly pass away in 2016. And both Zach and his mother, Robin, and their whole family, they were robbed of a lifetime of memories for reasons we may never know why. But Robin's family are determined that she is never forgotten. Quote, There isn't a day that goes by that my sister does not cross my mind. Some days are better than others. But even more than 30 years later, I still hold out hope. Unquote. If you have any information regarding the murder of Robin Stone and her unborn son, Zachary, please contact the Guernsey County Sheriff's Department on 741-439-4455. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, Like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.